0: Hey everybody Andrew Bray here sound designer and son of your podcast host Barbara Bray. Hi mom
1: Hi Andrew how <laughs> you doing?
0: well we're we're both in different cities that have the exact same color of the sky um, It's not a red day but over here it's kind of a brown day. I'm up here in Portland by the way
1: um, and I'm in Oakland in California and uh, the fires are all over the West coast Oh
0: my goodness crazy. Yeah, it's uh, it's nice to have air conditioning and air filters on the indoors. Uh, but but well, uh, on the plus side, I'm not in the apocalypse. I'm talking with you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm glad we can at least the power works. So not yeah. knock on wood, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: This is going to be a, a heck of a, a heck of a time capsule when we look back on this day.
1: Oh, I'm just yeah. sad for all the people that are losing their homes and yeah. anything. But I, I'm glad I still have the podcast and I'm able mm-hmm. to talk to some wonderful people. And
0: yeah. Tell me more about this uh, next conversation. With,
1: with Derek Wenmuth. I, um, I'm i just really excited that he wanted to talk to me. I've known, I've known about him for 15 years and got to meet him recently. And it just what i realize is that we have a lot in common and that'll mm. come out in the podcast yeah and some of the things we talked about is just that it's like we could have talked for hours <laughs> so i was uh, i just feel so grateful to know him mm-hmm. and that we had this conversation
0: yeah you guys go way back right
1: well he didn't know it i learned about personalized learning through him and i mentioned that in the podcast Okay. Um, he started Core Ed and I found it in 2005 or around that time and went, oh my gosh, this is just what I wanted. And, and then didn't even know it was him that did it.
0: Oh my gosh. Well, folks stay tuned as you listen to a conversation with Barbara Bray and Derek Wenmith as they go back to their roots.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know how I always start? how, There's someone I've been wanting to talk to. Well, this is someone I've been wanting to talk to for 15 years. Maybe it's even longer now. (laughs) This is Derek Wenmouth, and I hope I said it right.
2: You did, that. Hi.
1: I just, I I have known you for a long time. I've known about all the work you've done. And then I got to meet you last year. So I, it's just been, it's just something I, I was so glad you said yes. You wanted to talk with me.
2: How could I say no, Barbara?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Derek, I'm going to just share a little bit about you first to introduce you to my audience. Sure. Okay. It's Derek Wenmuth. And Derek is regarded as one of New Zealand education's foremost future focused thinkers and works extensively with schools and systems in New Zealand and elsewhere, actually around the world, as they all seek. To prepare students for their future. And he does. I really mean it. He really does do this. I've watched his work. So he's also consulting with policymakers and government agencies regarding the future directions of New Zealand's educational policy and practice. He's currently running Future Makers. It's an educational consultancy focused on making our education system more future-focused by inspiring the next generation of leaders, thinkers, and problem solvers, Tiora Derek. Now, I don't know if I said it right.
2: Oh, it's not bad. Tēnā <laughs> How are you, Barbara?
1: Oh, I am just wonderful. This has just uh, been a dream of mine to have you here.
2: Well, I'm so privileged to be here. Having listened to many of your other podcasts, I I feel really privileged to be a part of the lineup now.
1: Oh, you're, you're just wonderful. And I, there's so much you've done in... For, for a long time. I'd love you to share your background.
2: Well, I guess like uh, a number of your listeners, um, I'm an educator. I left school. I went into teachers' college. I started teaching. I spent some time as a principal. I spent about 10 years as a teacher educator at the university. I spent time uh, in our New Zealand um, Correspondence School uh, because my background is in distance education and um I had the privilege of sort of being in that whole field before and then during and then after the introduction of the World Wide Web. So I've had a, had a, a really solid grounding in that way. And I've spent some time in um, our Ministry of Education, helping develop national ITC, ICT strategy, digital uh, technologies work, uh, and then started core education way back in 2003, And I've been working with them right up until just a couple of years ago.
1: Well, that's how I knew you. So I was just telling you right before we talked is um, I was into making learning personal. I've been doing a lot of coaching and I found you. I don't know if it was, you know, how I found core education, but the work that you do in core education is just remarkable. Do you want to tell a little bit about
2: uh, that well, core education was a uh, was a bit of a dream you know sometimes in our careers we do things and like you say, you set up your own business and I had two colleagues with me uh, in the in the university and the teachers' education set up at the time and we'd been working there for a number of years in different parts of the organization but we we had the same dream we we sort of wanted to break free and uh, not perhaps be shackled so much by the bureaucracy of the organisation and so forth. And our opportunity came and we took it and uh, started Core Education in 2003. Um, had two, two major kind of thrusts at the time. We were very, very fortunate that uh, we'd, the group of us had just won two contracts with the Ministry of Education in our capacity as uh, lecturers and the university let us take those contracts with us and start them up. One was the, to start a, a national uh, development programme for, for teachers learning with and about ICT. And um, so one of my colleagues was actually the architect and the designer of that programme. And the other colleague had just won a significant um, programme, probably New Zealand's largest and longest term research project, looking at... Uh, the impact of ICT use in classrooms, and I was a part of the team on that. So we we started. We had a privilege. We started probably with about 11 people, uh, and uh, went went straight into it. And by the time I stepped back from leadership a couple of years ago, uh, we'd grown to about 240 people right throughout New Zealand, uh, operating in in all areas. We have a large group of early childhood educators um, a large team of Maori educators working in both Maori medium and English medium some Pacifica educators and and a host of other people uh, we do a lot of the the work developing the, the content for the Ministry of Education's websites uh, particularly for our, the inclusive education website uh, looking at all forms of UDL and that sort of thing so it's sort of grown into an organization with lots of fingers and lots of pies
1: what's really interesting see i started in edtech that's maybe how i found you first because i was looking for strategies especially i was really into you know the learner centered approach long ago and projects and and when i found some of the work especially i love the the recent ones on the trends oh yes (laughs) Do you want to tell
2: about that? Yeah, well, that was something we're celebrating this year—fifteen years of the trends. That was something I actually had responsibility for, and have continued to write most of it. Um, So, and it was a—it was a way of saying what what are the things on the horizon? You know, as we're thinking about future planning, one of the important things that we need to be able to do is familiarise ourselves with with. The, the kind of the environment and, and understand what the trends and patterns are that are sort of th- posing a, a threat of influence, shall we say. And um, so they've, they've grown over the years. It started off as a, a fairly simple thing, just posting 10 things that we thought were influencing. But over the years, we've become a lot more sophisticated and grouped those trends around five themes, which are part of the, the sort of future-focused um, literature. And uh, we 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 have people waiting for those to be published each year, uh, so it's been a lot of fun. Me? Me?
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's amazing. And and some of the can you tell me where, where you live? I you know I actually don't know which.
2: Ah yes, yeah, so I uh, live in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and um, I've not long ago, about a year ago, moved with my wife from Christchurch, where we had lived for a long time, to live in Wellington, which is where two of our daughters and all our grandchildren are living up here. So we felt it was time to be close to them.
1: Oh, that's nice. Uh, you weren't there when they you had that earthquake, right?
2: We certainly were. And uh, yesterday, it was 10 years since the first one that hit down there. That it was, it was the a big one, but it, it was one that didn't cause deaths. So they have been close to our hearts and minds, actually. mm.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I live in earthquake country too, so it's <laughs> we've been fortunate so far. Right now, we have uh, fires. I think there's uh, something going on. So just be safe. You know, I knew there was. Uh, I I met Lee Hines and Anne Canelli. Oh yes, um, I love them. I just they just amazing people. And uh, it they when I went in 2017, it was right after Wellington.
2: the the earthquake. That's right, the earthquake up on the Kaikota
1: coast. Yeah, so I just have to say your country is so beautiful. Oh, thank you. It's just, I didn't want (laughs) to (laughs) leave. So let's talk a little bit about maybe some of the culture and history, because that's one thing I found. Um, (laughs) I met, uh, I had to learn some Maori and which I wasn't very good at, but I I was <laughs> I love the culture and I love how it's integrated into mm. the, the whole society.
2: Yeah, I think um, that's one of the things I feel particularly uh, proud about. To be honest, to be a New Zealander, uh, so New Zealand's compared with many countries, we're only fairly young. Um, it was founded as a country uh, in 1840, is a is a particularly important year, and that was when the Treaty of Waitangi was signed. Uh, between the Maori and the um, the, the colonising kind of group from from England at that time, uh, and that that group comprised of representatives of the Queen and missionaries and so forth. But we're very lucky in a way that uh, that treaty was signed. And although there are interesting dilemmas around the translations that were made and all sort of thing. It is respected and regarded by both Māori and Pākehā as, as the founding document for New Zealand. And it, it commits us to working in partnership with each other and to respect each other's cultures and language and identity and so forth. Now, uh, sadly, you know, there were a lot of years where that wasn't honoured, it wasn't followed through. It was just a straight sort of colonial takeover that sort of happened. But in the last 30 years there's been a real swing back to understanding what that really, really means. And so, as you experienced in your visit, Barbara, um, the Māori language is much more evident around the place, not as evident as many people would like to see it, but it is growing. Uh, The recognition of Māori cultural practices and um, that's kind of Māori heritage uh, is is there. And even things like um, just recognising the importance of place names in Māori and not just the name, but actually the significance of that name and the history of that place in Māori culture and tradition. So um, I think it gives us a, a perspective that probably I haven't experienced in many other parts of the world of, of what it means to truly recognise and, and kind of operate in partnership with the Indigenous people of the
1: land. I- really don't know any other place that's done that um mm. not the way that i mean maybe it, i haven't traveled as you know extensively around the world so i can't say that but i do know that the i i was touched by the people i met and right. how kind everyone was and um when we went to uh, Mount mount
2: yep, Rua, Ruapehu.
1: And Micah was the one who was driving us, who is Maori. And he was telling us all the stories. And he said, this is the land of the white, the long white, white cloud. cloud. It's
2: yeah. aotearoa
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so we learned all of these, you know, his, um, it's like the stories probably are carried through where there's a lot of cultures, of, you know, indigenous cultures where the stories are gone. The language is gone. It's really important to I, think,
2: it, I, think, I think that's important for two reasons for me. one is to to be able to connect strongly with the the traditions, cultures, beliefs and practices of of the Maori culture and recognize them just as legitimate and, and special for them as a people as a, as a culture as as my background is and the things that um, you know have contributed to my heritage. I think the other thing though that that I feel particularly close to, is a strong part of Maori culture is that connection with the land, like you say with uh, Ruapehu uh, and the stories that go there. I mean, any part of New Zealand. In fact, uh, a strong thing in New Zealand that most people will do in a, in a formal gathering is they'll be expected to have their mihi which is their or their pepiha, which is the story of who they are and where they belong. And it always starts with um, a greeting that introduces you by identifying with the mountain. That was close to where you live, The river that flowed where you lived. The the family, the the, the that you belong to, and so forth. And for me, uh, those things are really important as we're looking into the future. Because uh, as a as a colonised country uh, with with a lot of the kind of Western values that go with that, it, and it's not just here, of course, it's around the world. We the last century has been a pretty damaging one for our environment, because we've we've moved into new environments and we've been extremely exploitative of them. And if you look at what keeps us alive now, the economy, even the econo- economic model that we have, is a very exploitative one. We're just extracting value without putting anything back. And we're facing you know, a worldwide shortage of oil, of water, of the earth's resources that that replenish and sustain us. And one thing that we learn from Māori culture is the significance and importance that you don't take something away without giving back. And, uh, I mean, I I remember from being very young, we were taught some of the practices of weaving with flax, a very common uh, bush all around New Zealand. But we were always taught very carefully that When you cut the leaves from the flax, they had to be cut in a particular way so that the the sap that was draining didn't go into the plant and and kind of clog it up. But also, when you you, uh, have finished with the flax and you've cut the pieces, the stuff that you haven't used, you return it and put it back under the plant to become nourishment for the plant as it continues to grow. And I mean, that's just a small snapshot, but it kind of summarizes a lot of that uh, that thinking that's evident in the Maori culture. And I think um, we can learn a lot from that in our daily life, uh, in this incredibly consumeristic, consumptive, extractive kind of lifestyle that we've become used to.
1: Well, you know, I like talking like this. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Uh, one is that it's it's very scary right now with what's going on in the climate yeah. and the, and, um, and I we have a big garden we have a half an acre which is pretty big and we've been eating from our garden and my husband has been doing what you're saying he's trying mm. to bring everything back to the soil, mm. which. I think you know I, when I came back from New Zealand, I was like, "Oh, we got to go there. You just <laughs> have to see what they're doing." And so what I what I did go. We <clears throat> went into a school in Ruapehu uh, that was all Maori, right? Uh, yeah, and they were amazing. Um, what I liked is that there was it was all learner centered, and these were older children, yes, and um, but they also had a community there. Where they had the families, who everyone was part of the school and learning together. It just seemed that way, anyway. Right. So it seems like you know you say it takes a village. Will they do that?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, and it's um it flows over to every level. Uh, that just the the way families look after each other, the way grandparents are involved, all of these sorts of things are, um, you know, from a from a Western world view. Uh, Worth taking note of because we've been so quick uh, to just let all that stuff go. It doesn't count in our pursuit for more wealth and and more stuff.
1: Well, you know what's happening now is that a lot of us are alone now. I mean, we're self isolated, and, and I, I, don't, you know, I'm not sure. We'll talk about this in a little bit about New Zealand and where they are because I know that you've, your prime minister, and what you've done is kept the you know the virus in check a little bit much better than we have anyway. <laughs> and so, um, but but what I've had is a lot of time for reflection and what's important. And, you know, I I don't need as much. And it's really amazing. The one things that really you value are family and, and good friends and, and the time that you have. I, I really value this time with you because one, I've read a lot that you've written. I've Saw you at you know the conference that there were institute last year, and I kept going. You guys, you have to listen to this guy. <laughs> He's doing these wonderful things, and uh, and and the core education. I I really think people need to learn more about that. But you're doing more now. You're doing this with the future makers.
2: Yeah, well, um, it got got to the point at, uh, with core that it had grown and. I was getting a little bit older, and um, my colleague and I had always said that uh, there would come a point where we would need to let let it let it go for the next generation of leaders and and some some fresh minds and fresh innovators to just be able to keep it going for the next ten years, next fifteen years, and so that was the decision we took uh, and stepped back. I still do some work with Core Education, I, you know. They, I'm, I'm still active. Ten Trends is one of those things that I do with them, but in order to kind of release myself so I'm not continually being around them and getting in the way, I decided I'd set up Future Makers. And for me, the the, the motivation was actually my grandkids uh, because I got to that point of thinking, you know, it's all very well. I've been on about, you know, personalised learning, project-based learning, this, that and the other thing, uh, changing the way that we work in modern learning environments. I mean, all of those things have been waves that I've ridden and felt pretty passionate about, but it was like, a, a it hit me about a couple of years ago that actually all of that counts for nothing. If we're not genuinely investing in our, in our future generations uh, to help them grapple with the problems that we haven't even conceived of yet. And, and, actually charge them with being able to clean up the mess that we're leaving behind because of our exploitative and, and extractive kind of mindset. And um, I, I looked at my grandkids, you know, I, I was reading some books over the over Christmas, um, one of which was the, called The Uninhabitable Earth. And it was a pretty it was a pretty gloomy future for the planet from it was a very scientific point of view, pointing out that if, if we do not change our behaviour, if we do not alter the way that we fundamentally think about what is ours and our privilege of exploiting and extracting and carrying on that way, then we're going to have a fairly gloomy future by the year 2050. And uh, they painted a picture of the year 2100 that almost had us non-existent. Now, I don't want to be scaremongery, but there was a lot of science behind what was shared that got me thinking, well, the point is we can change it. We can do this. The, the, in New Zealand, when we had our big lockdown, we were locked up completely for five weeks. It was unbelievable. It was like other parts of the world. The air was cleaner. We heard birds singing in the trees. We, we found that we didn't need to be in our cars going everywhere. And, and so our behaviour could change in the ways that it needed to. But I started to look at my grandchildren and thought, you know, if we don't change, then things are pretty gloomy. And this picture of 2100 sort of seemed miles away. You know, well, that's that's way out of, I'll be dead by then. There's no way, even with life support, that I'll go that long. Uh, and yet I looked at my kids and I thought, you know, my grandkids and all those other kids who are in our schools right now are quite likely to be alive still in 2100, you know, for them, it's not that far away, and I can't I can't physically influence or change the world for twenty one hundred, but I can change and influence the lives of young people like theirs so that they can be the change. They they are the future makers.
1: So, I have a granddaughter, and I also I feel like because um, we were locked down first here in the Bay San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and I've been locked down. I, because of my age and some pre-existing conditions and stuff, I'm, I haven't seen my granddaughter except FaceTime or on Zoom and stuff, but, um, I decided this is something I have to do to protect me, but also to protect others. But the other thing is, like you said, everything was different. I saw my garden different. The birds that come around—we have all of a sudden. I have. We put milkweed in, and all of a sudden, the monarchs are coming. And ah, lovely. Yeah, it's just lovely. And I just and I notice things a lot more. And I think we want our kids to do that. So, can you tell me what you do to encourage or empower kids to think about the future? And
2: yeah, well, it's. uh, I think most of my work is actually working with teachers at the moment, to, to encourage them to then work with their kids. And, like, the 10 trends is a part of that. Um, and working with, with future-focused mindsets, there are different models and strategies that can help us to look into um, uh, what, what sorts of things the future might hold. But as far as children are concerned, I think I, I, I have a slightly different approach because, um, I mean, we're constantly talking about the future uh, and kids have no no concept of that. They they, they are strug- Many of them are struggling with the present, right? And so, rather than with children, rather than focusing on the future per se, I'm I'm really committed to focusing on making making uh, learning a joyful and delightful experience, and one that gives them great confidence and great hope in the now, and and a a sense of not, not the Superman sense of I can do anything, but a sense of personal empowerment that, uh, and, and, you know, that's that concept of agency, that they don't have to be the the people that are being done to. Uh, and so my encouragement is around, um, you know, making schools safe places where wellbeing is, is as much a focus as the emphasis on what is is taught in the curriculum. Uh, to make them places where um, teachers work alongside students as as learners uh, in that same excitement and discovery and delight that comes because uh, I think you know let's face it the factory model that we've been so insistent on following which is you know only a product of our exploitative extractive kind of mindset you know is that we've we perpetuated at our peril and uh, the idea of kids just going day after day to a school because they're told to and then to sit down. And, um, you know, I, I often take great delight uh, contemplating. We talk a lot about the, the four Cs or the six Cs, you know, the stuff, the work of the OECD, looking at collaboration and, and, and communication and creativity and these sort of things. But the reality is there are three Cs that dominate the design of our schools. And those C's are conformity, compliance, and certainty. We don't uh-huh. like change. <laughs> and we don't <laughs> like you to do your own thing. And we want you to be like everyone else and go through oh, the sausage factory.
1: I know, we, yeah, yeah, you know. I don't like that. Yeah, that's why I wanted to talk to you because this is this is exactly, I mean, this is what I've been talking about a long time, but Absolutely. you're doing it. So keep going.
2: The, the thing is, the challenge is, Barbara, and it's a, a part of us finding our place in the system. This this change is so multifaceted that we've got to uh, we're to find our place and and understand that every every piece of change happens. And I guess in my life, I've had huge privilege because I've been able to work at. The political level and change or influence policy and and that sort of thing, but I, I can work with teachers, I can work with local schools, and I can work with students. And um, there's a there's a dimension at every level in the system that we need to be capturing. But I'd have to say uh, a key thing, as it comes back to the quote that you had before, is that it's it takes a village to raise a child, and. That's perhaps the other major thing that we need to embrace here is the understanding that schools have to stop seeing themselves as that that isolated, insulated factory that the kids come into and they deal with them and they spit them out the other end. We We have to understand that those children come from homes and families. Some of them are rich with culture and rich with experience and others are incredibly deprived of those things to the extent that they come to school each day hungry, uh, and, and, you know, both physically and metaphorically. Uh, and some have even been beyond that. They've, they come to school from abusive relationships and, and um, from places where they are just told from morning to night where they're not worthy and not, not ever going to succeed. And somehow it's, it's an impossible task for schools to be the agency in society that somehow makes that change. They have. They are in a blessed and privileged position and need to understand that they contribute to that. But we need to stretch our, our thinking much more broadly. We need to be working in partnership with health agencies. We need to be working in partnership with welfare agencies. We need to be thinking about justice agencies. We need to be thinking about all of those parts of our society that, that contribute to make us whole in the fullest extent of the word, and not compartmentalize what we do, and I think if we get to there, then we'll end up with that shared vision and shared commitment to take us forward.
1: We were in a webinar yesterday, and you did bring that up, and I was like, "Go, Derek!" Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I saw what you were writing, and um, yeah, but the now with the pandemic, and now it's. It's like exposing a lot of the inequities that are out there and and have always been there, which is which is um, I always think about the hidden stories that kids have that we don't ever listen to. We're too busy to you know cover the curriculum, and um, we need to do more of the social emotional and that piece of well the well being and really understand that uh, all of us come to the table with something.
2: Absolutely. And I think I was part of a delightful conversation some weeks ago now uh, among some teachers sharing their experience during lockdown that illustrates this for me because um, the point that you just made about uh, being so busy with delivering the curriculum that we kind of overlook that. And you see it, don't we? Uh, when we, our, The way that we regard parents is sort of like communication from school is a one-way process. You know, we're 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 communicating with them because it's going. What about when they want to communicate to us? How much do we actually know about what the inside of their their home and their life is like and the, the relationships that they hold? Now, the point was during during lockdown. Uh, of course, everyone jumps on Zoom. Well, those who could, and uh, suddenly teachers were beaming into the living rooms of their students. Now, at first, you know, face value, that sounds like a great thing and and ultimately it is, I think it's a good thing. But what it, it confronted some people in terms of the protocols with that because actually for families sending their children to school, you know, when we've got conformity, compliance and certainty, you know, often they dress them up in a uniform, then those kids are just there as part of the sausage factory and we're, we're treating them as one-size-fits-all units that we have to put through the system. When we turn a Zoom meeting or Teams or whatever, the Google Meet or whatever we want to use, and um, we we make a call into a student in their home, it's it's as if we're being invited into their home. It's not just like, you know, making a phone call. We are now virtually in their home. And so to assume that it's okay to require them to have their video camera on, for example, that, that you're, you're coming in and when that video camera goes on, you're seeing inside their home. It's like visiting there. Now, at the front door, you get invited in. You don't just barge in. And so it was really interesting to hear the conversations uh, about um, some of the protocols that were developed Uh, And and one teacher who was in a very predominantly Pacifica community said that for her staff and her principal and the staff agreed that they would use Zoom, but the protocol was the cameras would be off until the invitation came to turn them on uh, from the home that they were now a guest in. And that might seem a small thing, but actually it's a part of a very significant recognition of the place and language and culture and identity and so forth of those people. And it's showing respect and it's building a rapport that, that um, stops us being the educational colonizers into those places.
1: Well, it's, it's very hard for some teachers uh, and administrators and even the school system, because it has been top down for so long. Absolutely. And so uh, the idea, I mean, I used to go visit homes you know, just in, yep. in some areas where we assumed they'd want us there. They didn't always want us there. That's right. <laughs> and so, and and also the other thing is, there's a lot of homes that have multi-age children and they can't really, you know, balance trying to do Zoom different times of the day when they're working or when, I mean, That's there's right. so many, That's right. so many issues now that, um, I, we, we should be asking the kids. Hmm. We should be yeah. asking, maybe part of the future focus is, how would you do this if this, you know if we had to do this virtual or COVID? What would you think would be the best and yeah. invite them? Well,
2: it's interesting. Um, I blogged recently um, about uh, just a blog called Lessons from Lockdown, and I've listed quite a few of the reports because around New Zealand during the last couple of months, there have been quite a few um, small-scale research reports done by um, universities and interested researchers who have done exactly that. They've talked with the kids, they've talked with the families, and they've they've got those perspectives on what worked uh, for them.
1: Mm. Oh, I maybe we can look at, I mean, if you want to share, you know, we put a post together. Yeah. If there's any of that you want to share, but something's coming up that's pretty cool that I'm going to be part of. Can we talk about that? It's we can a, yeah, it's the U Learn conference. It's I've been wanting to go for years, and now I'm going to be there virtually. Tell tell us a little about it. Yeah, that.
2: look, U uh, Learn was one of those things that um, we started actually before we formally started up Core Education. Uh, we were running uh, this this conference, but it formally started properly just after we started um, Core, and um, it's it's the largest education conference in New Zealand for for teachers and given that we're only you know five million people so we're only you know like the state of Arkansas in population um, we get somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 people attending really? yeah ah. and we're, we've invited um, you know we have international keynotes and all the sorts of things that you get usually with a conference but one of the things that we decided right from the very, very beginning was we wanted it to be more like a staff meeting than a conference. We wanted it to be a place where teachers from across New Zealand could gather and get really enthusiastic about the change that they were making and to share the stories of that change, which would then enthuse others. And so uh, regularly, we would, uh, I, well, I'll take the story the other, I remember the very first one we ran uh, this was back in about 1990, uh, 1999, I think, and we we planned, uh, it wasn't called Ulearn at that stage, but this was the precursor to it, and we thought this was the very early days of starting with the ICT strategy in New Zealand, we thought we'd be lucky if we could get 70 teachers to it, that's what we were aiming to get. And we thought we'd divide them up because we really wanted to have teachers presenting to other teachers. And we had to really scratch our heads at that stage. We thought that we could run five workshops. And we thought, who are the five people we could get to run those workshops? And it was a successful event and it was all good. But that, that has grown. we've never lost that idea that it, the primary focus is teachers for teachers, teachers sharing their experience. And we, we work with them on the skills of presenting and unpacking and sharing reflection and so forth. And schools now have bought into that idea and many schools will work with their staff through the year and their teachers will build those stories and develop their artifacts and and make a pitch to be able to come to Ulearn to then share it and present it. So that we run, whilst we might have, you know, say three keynotes of big names, we have over 300 workshops that are run by teachers for teachers. Sharing that experience and so forth, and in the last two or three years, the exciting thing for us, and we're going to take it even to another level now with um, with the virtual U uh, Learn, is uh, we we've been uh, issuing badges for for that sort of participation uh, that have a rubric sitting behind them, so you can see the growth and development, so that uh, people can actually get recognition for the way that they're contributing to the conference, but also for demonstrating actually their own personal growth and development as they come through it. So the conference is, it's not just a thing you go to, it actually becomes a, a learning, a deep and rich learning experience. So that's happening on the, what is it, 7th, 8th of October this year. And yeah, which is because 6th it's virtual. 7th.
1: Sixth Six seven, and seventh—that's
2: right for you. But
1: no, it's seventh and eighth for you. So, yeah. I, you know, I'll be talking to you after because I got a—I have some questions. Oh, you do? I'm, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has just been amazing. Is there anything yeah. that I didn't touch on that you want to?
2: Oh, look, we could probably talk for hours. I think uh, Barbara, both—I <laughs> I do believe that. Um, uh, yeah, we've touched on some pretty significant things here, and the the one thing I would uh, take away—I'd give us—I think we we can't waste the opportunity that we have had right now uh during covid to deeply reflect on and and learn from the experience that we've gone through just like you were saying for yourself the time to just be to be a quiet be to to rethink our priorities to rethink the ways in which we might uh, enrich the lives of those kids who are in our schools each day and all that sort of thing so that we end up um we end up in a different place when we when we come out the other side because the other side is going to be different anyway. It's not not about going back to normal, so just let's keep having these conversations. Let not waste the opportunity.
1: This has been. I was trying to write down that as a quote. I want to use what you just <laughs> said because it was just perfect. Oh, Derek, this is just uh, you really are a gift to to the you know to teachers to students and this idea of future makers i i just can't wait to share more of it you shared a lot at the aurora institute some of the pictures and stuff maybe we can put a few of those up because it's just it's what we need it's their future not ours that's right we we have to be there for them thank you so much derek this was just amazing it's a pleasure This is Barbara Bray. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning podcast and my conversation with Derek Renloff. Make sure you check out the blog post that goes with this podcast about Derek. It's on my Rethinking Learning website. It includes his story, the history and culture of New Zealand, the Maori, Core Ed, Future Makers, the You Learn 20 conference we talked about, and, and more. You can subscribe to my website at barbabray.net to receive announcements, updates, and you can even check guiding questions for my book, Define Your Why, that's on my site also. I hope you subscribe to my podcast because we will be sharing ideas and stories during this crisis, and now we need each other more than ever. All of our stories matter, so keep sharing your story and Please stay healthy and safe.